you wake up in the morning, you say to someone, Mangwana ni mamukasei. And it means, good morning, how did you rise? And the answer is, ndamuka kanamamukawo, which means, I woke up well if you woke up well. So if you're not okay, I'm not okay. I did not like the feeling of asking people for money. When I started, I got to a point where I felt like I was begging people to help me. And it was not a nice feeling. I'm trying to disrupt this paradigm of giving. I'm just an ordinary woman. I'm not a millionaire. I'm just somebody who has a passion to do something in the world. And it doesn't stop me that I don't have the money. You can turn a 24-hour day into 36 if you want to. It's called air travel. <laughs> <laughs> so he's injecting this dye into my wrist. I am in just pain. And I started watching the monitor in front of me, of my heart. And I just went inward and I started asking my heart, why, why are you doing this to me? And I got the weirdest answer. My heart answered back and said, Gertrude, you've done this to me. Hey, hey, Brian Miller here, and welcome back to One New Person, the show where we take a closer look at chance encounters to remind ourselves that every interaction is meaningful and every person we meet is important. Today's guest is Getrude Matche, who describes herself as a serial social entrepreneur. Getrude and I met just recently when she sought out my services as a speaking coach to help her put the finishing touches on her new TEDx talk. I was immediately struck by how powerful and influential she is and felt the need to share her story with you. The entire conversation hinges on the concept of Ubuntu, an African philosophy Getrude picked up as a native of Zimbabwe, which she now spreads across the world as an activist, writer, and speaker. Within that philosophy, we discuss activism, illness, the illusion of time, Getrude's unique process for writing a book in just 40 hours, luck, chance, relationships, and so much more. While this episode makes a compelling piece of audio, it's worth noting that I've uploaded the video recording to YouTube as well. You'll find that link in the show notes on onenewperson.com. Now, please enjoy this conversation with the awe-inspiring Getrude Mache. Getrude, thank you so much for uh, spending the morning after you just did the big one. You just did the <laughs> TEDx talk last night. How, how do you feel? I feel amazing. Do you? I yeah. feel relieved. <laughs> I was very, very anxious about this, but it was an incredible evening. Yeah. I really had a good time. Yeah, that's yeah. great. So where, you know, you spent months preparing for this and to a certain extent, years, because you gave a TEDx talk. You're, when was your last last time you gave one? I think it was 2007, if 2007. I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So it was a, that was at the, like kind of the beginning of the height of TED and TEDx yes. talks. I think TEDx talks only started in around 2006 yes. based on the TED format that had been around for years earlier. Um, so it's been a while since that one. And, and when we first met, you really were kind of desperate to do another one. Mm -hmm. Was there was there something about the first one that you feel like wasn't quite the message or you didn't quite get it across the way you wanted? Yes. Um, in the first one, I came across really well. Um, I have a lot of stories to mm -hmm. tell, 
but I feel like I missed what I wanted to put across, which was the Ubuntu philosophy and what it means. So what I did is I tried to wrap the philosophy in my personal stories to illustrate that. I didn't really have um, help in putting the presentation together. In the end, I looked back at it and it sounded like I was just trying to sell my book. And oh, yeah. yeah, so I was glad that I, I had a second chance to, to do it. Hence the Ubuntu 2.0. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Humanity's operating system, right? Exactly. So why don't you why don't you dig into that a little bit for us uh, right as we get started? Um Ubuntu. Am I pronouncing that correctly? By you, the are. Way? you are. I, I, Thank I'm, you. I'm always, I, I try to be very, very <laughs> conscious of pronouncing things. And Americans have a terrible habit of completely mispronouncing everything, <laughs> but also being oblivious to it. So I try to at least not be oblivious. Um, Ubuntu, what, what is it? Ubuntu is an African philosophy enshrined in the belief that a person is a person through other people. So Ubuntu Gamuntu Gavantu is the literal translation. Um, in Africa, we believe that humanity is one. I could not be here without you and you could not be there without me. So it's in the observation of each other that we exist. And it's a way of being, it's a way of living. And I didn't realize how magical it was until I left Africa. <laughs> So when I went to London for the first time, or the second time, I was 19, I had gone to study and I lived in a society where people didn't look me in the eye and I felt like I was disappearing and I would phone home and, and cry and say to my mom, I feel like I'm not here. And my mother would say, what, what do you mean? I'm like, nobody looks at me, nobody sees me. Mm. So when we greet in Southern Africa, we say Sabona which means I see you. And it's not just the seeing of sight. It's my acknowledging you as a, another human being. And so it, it was a struggle for me when I first left Africa. I felt like a, a fish out of water because my very existence up until that point was based on the people around me. It was based on community. And I, I lost that when I moved to London for the first time. That's so interesting that you say you, you lost that because I... I feel like we we hear it a lot, especially in America today, that, you know, it's so divisive and so distracted. We're so disconnected. And I've always wondered, you know, is, is that really just here? Is it everywhere? And what's interesting to me about that is that you were born in that and you lived that philosophy. And then when you left, did you feel like did you feel like you lost it or that you were unable to take it with you because the cultures that you like you went into, the new places you went into, they didn't have that same philosophy? Is that which one happened? I think it's the second. Yeah. Um, I kept it in me. I kept trying to connect. Yeah. And every once in a while, I would have these magical moments mm -hmm. where I would bump into these random strangers who saw me, who looked at me, who had a present conversation with me. Because the other thing about Ubuntu is about being fully present to someone when you speak to them. So in the societies where I've lived out of Africa, people don't do that as a natural thing. What are they not doing? Like what, I, I feel like that's actually, that's a harder question than what, what, sh what are you used to people doing? I'm used to people just being authentic. Mm. They're not fronting. They're not trying to be something. They're not trying to impress you. Um, people are just 
who they are. And so I, I come from a culture where in my language, there is no sarcasm. Mm. There's no innuendo in our language. So if somebody says something to you, they mean what they say. Uh, so Ubuntu is also in the language. And this is something else that I I discovered after I left Africa, yeah. just how it's, it's interwoven in, in so many ways. You know, yeah. like if you wake up in the morning, you say to someone, Mangwana ni mamukasei. And it means, good morning, how did you rise? And the answer is, which means, I woke up well if you woke up well. So if you're not okay, I'm not okay. And, and it's, it's so tied in the language, it's tied in the culture. Wow. And then I found that I would be having a conversation with someone. And after a few minutes, I would see their eyes glazing over. And I can see they're not here anymore. And they're now thinking, oh, shit, she's talking too much. I've got a meeting. I want to be polite. And they'll keep going, but yeah. they weren't there with me anymore. So th- that's the things that I picked up. Yeah, that that eyes glazed over thing that uh, that's and I, you know, I, I get it that as a, you know, as a communication coach and and I try to get it that by teaching, you know, some of the fundamental principles of active listening. And it's so silly. It f- almost feels so silly that you have to teach active listening, yes. but you have to teach active listening. And And I feel like when I have conversations with people so often, you can see it's not only that they glaze over. They're either thinking they they heard you say something, mm-hmm. and they realize they have a interesting, clever, or witty response to that thing, but you're still talking, and so they they don't get to say it yet, and so they just tune you out and keep going. Just remember that clever thing I want to say. <laughs> just remember that clever thing I want to say, and they just wait until your lips stop moving. Yes. And when they see that, they just jump in and say that clever thing, which it often is unrelated because yes. you've moved on. They haven't you're even three heard points you. later. <laughs> Yeah. And they're just interjecting. Um, <laughs> so so the idea worth spreading in your TEDx talk last night, uh, can you uh, can you kind of give us that in one tight, you know, neat sentence? So imagine for a moment if we could solve humanity's problems like our blood heals wounds. Mm-hmm. So if we were to think of the human race as an organism, that we are parts of the same whole. We're just cells. My grandmother used to describe it in a really interesting way. She would say, if you cut your finger and you start to bleed, your white blood cells will rush to that point to heal it. In a week's time, you can't even see the scar. That's how we should be reacting and responding to each other in the world. So that if we hear that there is an earthquake in Haiti and the 7 billion people on this planet just gave a dollar, Mm-hmm. to Haiti. We could restore that country in a day. Mm-hmm. So in Ubuntu, there's a sense of abundance. There's a sense of enoughness. And what I found out of Africa is a sense of not enoughness mm-hmm. and me and not we. Yeah. So what, let, let's let's step back for a second because I, I want to move maybe way back to how, how you ended up in, in kind of this this place, how you ended up in a hotel room in Oneonta on, <laughs> on, a, on a couch uh, <laughs> with me awkwardly. Um, take me back to the beginning. First, why don't we start here and then maybe we can move backwards. These days, if you're at a social gathering, if you're meeting people for the first time and someone just asks, what do you do? What's your answer these days? Mm. I call myself a serial social entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. 
I create business entities so I can have extra to give away and make a difference in the world. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I run for-profit businesses that can support my philanthropic efforts. For-profit. This was yes. the, this was one of the things that uh, intrigued me the most when we first got to know each other was that you don't you have done nonprofit in yeah. the past, right? But you mostly do for-profit. Yeah. And I'm I'm struck. Maybe you can talk to me about that because I think that intuitively feels like a contradiction to be doing like kind of save the world kind of campaigns <laughs> in a for-profit as opposed to. I, I think there's this idea people have that in order to do anything impactful at the world, you yourself have to be like almost living in poverty yes. and suffering in order to do it. So maybe you can speak to that. Why Why for-profit? Uh, for-profit because it gives me one independence. Mm. I did not like the feeling of asking people for money. When I started, I got to a point where I felt like I was begging people to help me mm. and it was not a nice feeling. That's that's how lately it feels like everyone with every cause on Facebook every mm-hmm. day. It's just like 400 people a day on Facebook are like, here's my cause. Please give me money. Yes. And they're all good causes. Yeah. But it puts a huge burden on your friends and family and your immediate networks. So. And there's this fatigue. There's donor fatigue now. Right. You know, people give and they don't see the impact mm-hmm. of the giving. Uh, most organizations have a lot of wastage and in, in marketing and promoting. So if somebody gives $20, by the time it hits Africa, it's 20 cents. And so I'm trying to disrupt this paradigm mm-hmm. of giving. I'm trying to create a new way of giving where it's empowered. You get to see your money in action. You mm-hmm. get to go to the communities that you want to help and meet them in person. I think it's a different experience when your feet hit the ground in a village that you've been supporting yeah. and you meet the children that you're trying to support or the women or whatever that is. It's a completely different experience and it's more sustainable because it's not great. a one-off thing. That's great. Uh, my one question about that is, Doing it that way, and maybe you can talk a little bit more about these actual trips yeah. uh, that that you do. These are these are highly ticketed. I mean, these are yeah. hot, very very expensive trips, right? This is not something that the average, mostly any average American could could do. You have to be, um, you have to be reaching out to a, a relatively well off audience. Actually, no, no, no. The first three people who came on my first trip when I hit on this idea were friends of mine, okay. just women from New Zealand. Sure. One was a psychologist, uh, one was a teacher, and one of them was an entrepreneur, a friend of mine who owns a childcare center. Mm. And I said, I've got this brilliant idea. I'm going to be charging $10,000 for you to come on a trip to Zimbabwe with me, but I'll show you how to make the money. Mm. Would you come? And they said, yes. Hmm. So I've been gifted with a brain that kind of breaks things down into small chunks. <laughs> and my idea was to create the Africa-inspired gala dinner. And all they had to do was sell 100 tickets at $100 each. That's $10,000. And I would show up as the gourmet chef for the night. (laughs) (laughs) So I flew to three different places. We started approaching different organizations to give us things, to have a silent auction when we had the dinner. And between the four of us, we raised $55,000 that first year. 55 grand the first year. And that's when I realized that I had really hit on this amazing idea where the ordinary person 
can go out there and make a difference. So I'm just an ordinary woman. I'm not a millionaire. Mm -hmm. I'm just somebody who has a passion to do something in the world. And it doesn't stop me that I don't have the money. So the money mm -hmm. shows up when you commit to something. <laughs> the money's always there. You describe yourself as an ordinary person who, you know, you're not a superhuman. Uh, in fact, that was one of the things that you and I had kind of worked on with, with the TEDx talk yeah. was to make sure that you don't come across as a superhuman because that, <laughs> that, that makes it harder for people to imagine themselves in that role. And so why don't you take us back now that we've got a kind of a good sense of, you know, where you are now and the kind of entities that you you do and why you're doing them and how they work. You can you can dig a little bit deeper as we did when we first met. Yes. So where did this all start? I was 17 years old. I had gone to visit my grandmother and we were sitting on the veranda sharing this large bowl of mangoes and watermelons. And suddenly we heard the sound and it was a helicopter flying into our village. And the next thing I saw was a shower of papers being thrown out of this helicopter. I grabbed one of them as it flew by and turned out to be an AIDS awareness campaign. It was a flyer teaching people about the spread of the AIDS virus. They were throwing condoms out of this helicopter as well. And I watched the adults around me doing the same thing I had done, picking up the papers, looking at the cartoon characters, crunching up the papers ready to be used for their fires. Mm. I watched the kids in my community ripping open the condoms, blowing them up and running around the village with <laughs> balloons. <laughs> and then they would run these workshops in the village square about AIDS mm. in English to a community of people who couldn't read, who couldn't write. And they would take a broomstick and put the condoms on a broomstick and say, this is how you prevent the spread of AIDS. Guess what? <laughs> a few weeks later, every single hut has a broomstick with a condom behind the door. So I'm 17 years old. I'm thinking this is ridiculous. And I just plucked up the courage to write to World Health. I talked to my parents and my dad said, go for it. And I asked them if I could write a play that had an AIDS theme to it. You asked World Health. Yeah. And they funded me. By the time I was 19, I was running an all-women's theater group. We were five girls doing this after work. And we would go into the rural communities in Zimbabwe. We wrote the songs. We had dance. We entertained people with the story. Mm. But it was a story about AIDS. And then we would run the workshops in the vernacular languages like Shona and Debele and really explain what a virus was. You know, Brian, that was the point in my life when I realized the value of education. Mm. You know, I would sit with women who would say to me, but Gertrude, I've been married for 35 years. What do you mean my husband's going to kill me if I sleep with him without a condom? And I had to find a way to explain what a virus was. You know, I would buy apples at the beginning of the week. I did this on a weekend. And I'll let them decompose. And when I ran my workshops, I'll pull out a box of rotting apples and a box of healthy apples and say, this is the human body. Something has gone inside this apple. It's not healthy anymore. It's eating away from the inside. It's decomposing and it's going to die. And you could see the face of AIDS. This is in 1986, 87. We had no medication. They called it the slow puncture. And you would see people literally just disappearing 
You would see somebody who was healthy getting thinner and thinner. They would lose their hair. They would get the lesions on their faces. And it got me to do something. And the reason why I wanted to educate that woman who could have been me, who's never gone to school, is because I was just lucky. <laughs> I was born to the right family who realized that education would get us out of poverty. I was nurtured by two of the most amazing human beings. My parents put me through private school in Rhodesia when we had racial segregation and African children received a substandard education. And I went to private school not because my parents were rich, but they were resourceful. My mom taught me how to knit, how to sew, how to crochet from the age of six. Mm. We had to make things after school to make money for school fees. My mom is a hustler. My mother will sell you the clothes you're wearing. <laughs> She's the most amazing salesperson. My dad had got a scholarship to study in London. And he took his young wife with him. So my father was a chartered accountant. My mother was a nurse. But when they came back to Rhodesia, my father could not get a white collar job because he was black. Mm. And he had to work in a chicken slaughtering factory until Zimbabwe got independence. So for them to put five kids through private school, we had to take part in making that money. And so... When I wanted to conscientize the most disadvantaged woman in my community, I knew that I was lucky to have an education. Right. And that's really where my passion, my passion started then. And then you started seeing the orphaned kids. You know, people were dying, both parents. Zimbabwe got to a point where we had households run by children who were eight, six years old, and they were the heads of households. Zimbabwe had 1.3 million orphaned kids at some point when I started my work. And we're still a country in a lot of trouble because of the political situation there. Sure. So we were working against a dictatorship. And even now, currently, there's still a lot of stuff going on that people are not aware of yeah. that create the challenges for, for me to do the work. But I've developed very creative ways to get around some of these things. You know, we've just had a change of government last year. So the old regime has gone after 35 years of a dictatorship. A new government came in, which is exactly the same. Exactly the same. Yeah. And because uh. our community didn't vote for the regime in the last elections, they have been punished from getting the free world health medication which is available 40 kilometers away. For people who don't know, Zimbabwe is a country without a currency. We had the highest inflation in the world. Our inflation when I left Zimbabwe 20 years ago was 516 quintillionth percent. When you say it's without a currency, can you explain that a little they bit more? They had to scrap the Zimbabwean dollar. It was worthless. The, the, the face value of the note was more expensive than the piece of paper. Mm. So they had to scrap the Zim dollar completely and they introduced the U.S. dollar. And there was a point where we were using U.S. dollars, South African rand, Botswana puller. You'd walk into a shop and you would get change in 
three, four different currencies. Right now, it's just the US dollar and mm. sometimes the South African rand and the puller. But it's been really challenging to work in that environment. And um, you have to find creative ways to, to jump these hoops. So my mission for 2019 is to build a library and to build a clinic so that I can get access to the free world health medication for my community. Mm. And the government has allowed me to work in education for the last 20 years. And this is how I took over this primary school. I've just been supporting 350 kids from our village for the last 20 years. Incredible. Paying for school fees, uh, starting a feeding program. With the proceeds from my Walk on the Wild Side tour business that takes people mm -hmm. to Zim, we started a microloan program where we would give people 50 US dollars. They could buy five bags of cement and we would train them to make the bricks that we needed to rebuild the school. We buy back the bricks at 25 cents a piece. They would make $250. So wow. it created employment. We trained the women in our community to cut and make the school uniforms so they could get some an income as well. And we, we've done so much with very little money in the last 20 years, but healthcare is still an issue. Yeah. So just before I got ill, I came up with this idea and it's not my idea. So I love TED. Yeah. Because you meet inspiring people with ideas that are out of the box. Mm. But the man that I met is from Australia. He's a Rotarian and I'm a Rotarian. Okay. And he created clinics throughout Southeast Asia by buying 40-foot containers and plonking them in the middle of a village. He'll put windows and doors, air conditioning, and mm. you've got instant infrastructure. Mm. And he was doing cataract eye surgery out of these containers. Oh, so I went and shadowed him for six months and documented his processes before he died. His name was John Fawcett. And the John Fawcett Foundation has done so much in Southeast Asia. It's inspiring. Yeah. So I got this idea to collect books by doing small presentations in primary schools throughout Wellington. I'll do a 10-minute assembly presentation. I'll tell the principal to tell the kids to bring any books they don't want. And in 90 days, I collected 65,000 books and I filled a 40-foot container. Wow. So it's been sitting in the harbor for two years because it just got really hard. I was recovering from congestive heart failure. But yeah. my vision is to take that container to Zimbabwe by the end of this year. When it gets to the community, we empty out the books, we build a library for the school, and then we refurbish the container into a clinic. So it's really a Trojan horse. The government That's, thinks I'm building oh a library, gosh. which I am. Yeah. But the end result is for me to create a clinic out of the container. And what I've done is I need to raise money to hire a private nurse and buy her a car. I've already negotiated with the World Health workers 40 kilometers away that we will pick them up once a month and bring them to our community. And that cuts out the transport costs. What the government says is that they don't have money for transport. So you're you're just so taking just it into your own hands. Facilitating. It's at once very empowering and also very, very sad that individual people and especially people all over the world who, like you said, are not millionaires, who aren't don't come from wealthy families or anything, just ordinary people have to take these things that governments are supposed to be doing for their people, that the organizations that we put in place as a society are supposed to be doing, that they just can't get stuff done at every level. You're talking about it at a very dire level in certain places of the world. Here in the States, we have government totally failing its people 
uh, in so many different ways at a different level. Um, But it's very empowering that somebody, just a person can decide to, to make such a tremendous impact, not, not the little, not even just the little day-to-day impact, which is something I, I spend most of my time trying to help people get on board with just that you can do in every interaction. You can make a tiny little impact that has a ripple, but you're not doing ripples. You're, (laughs) you're, you're making giant splashes like everywhere all the time. There is a book by a Zambian author called Dambiso Moyo. If anybody's listening, grab that book and read it. It's called Dead Aid. Okay, you'll have to send me the link to that and I'll put it in the show notes so anybody listening can go check that in the show notes. She talks about aid and how aid has disenfranchised Africa. You're talking about governments not being responsible for their citizens' health care. That's what's happened in Africa because a lot of the health care is provided by aid organizations. So that responsibility has been totally given to aid organizations by our governments, which is wrong. Yeah. We shouldn't have to rely on the outside to provide basic health care for our citizens. So, and that's why when I moved away from the nonprofit model, mm. it's the same thing because aid organizations can only do so much. In, in what way? How are, how are they limited? Let me give you an example. Um, I was invited to speak at an international women's conference in Kenya, Mm -hmm. not last year, about three years ago, just before I got ill. And it was an empowering conference for women. I raised money to pay for women in the rural peripheries of Mombasa to come to a workshop I wanted to run all around entrepreneurship, trying to show women how to get out of poverty. Out of the hundreds that we picked, guess how many showed up for the workshop? We paid for everything, transport, hotels, you name it. I'm afraid to even guess. 15. Do you want to know why the other 85 didn't come? Why? The United Nations was coming to deliver bags of corn that week. So we are a dumping ground for genetically modified corn. And these women will stand by the side of the road the whole week. They're not told what day, what time. Their kids are starving to get a bag of corn that they can only consume and they can't germinate the seed and grow their own food. Wow. And they didn't come. Our workshop was there to empower them on how to make things like jewelry that we could help them export overseas. I mean, a necklace like this, if you Mm. bought this in Zimbabwe, you would probably pay... The equivalent of two U.S. dollars. Beautiful. I have an online shop. I sell these for 25 to 35 U.S. online. Yeah. So that's what I was trying to do to say we have things around us that we can make and sell overseas and make a decent living. Yeah. But these women didn't come to my workshop and they waited for aid to come and help them. And I was there to try and empower them so they could help themselves. Right. This was a huge theme in your uh, your talk last night, which is that it's great to get help from other parts of the world, but it was seemed really important to you that you know Africans are able to help themselves. You 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 talked about the fact last night that that you're like the richest place on on planet Earth, <laughs> and you've you said we've been sold a lie. Can you? I believe that African people have been sold a lie. And the lie is that we are poor. What does Africa not have? 
from gold to diamond to oil to mineral resources. The missing piece for Africa is education. For us to be able to use our own resources. You know, our governments will perpetuate as dictatorships Mm -hmm. because they have a large uneducated population. The more educated people are, the more they can stand up against these regimes. Educated people are dangerous. We are dangerous. And what excites me is I am hoping that my message gets through to people of African descent who are in the diaspora. I believe we're time travelers. I'm quite excited about this because... (laughs) You know, I live in New Zealand. I'm always a day ahead of everybody else. (laughs) But we are time travelers. And my grandmother used to say that for a tree to survive, it has to scatter its seed as far away from it as possible Mm -hmm. for that species to thrive. Mm -hmm. So we've been dispersed through slavery. If you want to reframe the slavery story, we've been dispersed through wars, through economic and political reasons. But wherever we've landed... We've managed to go to school. We've managed to get an education. I will never go back to Zimbabwe to live there full time. Sure. But what I have been able to do from the outside Mm -hmm. is more than I could do when I was inside. Brian, when I was in Zim, I could not feed my kids. I was trained as a systems analyst. I couldn't get a job. I had three little kids. They were three, 10, and 12 when I left. And I went back to Zimbabwe in 1999 to find our economy in ruins. Where, uh, where are, your ki- are your kids scattered now? My children are, two boys are in, Aust- in New Zealand oh, and good. my daughter now lives in Melbourne, Australia. Oh, great. Yeah. So, so do you get to see them often enough? Yes, yes. That's so exciting. <laughs> I miss my daughter though. I miss oh, her. Yeah, yeah. yeah she's That's... moved. How, what's the flight from, uh, I've never, New Zealand and Australia are two places that I have, I've been all over the world. I've never been, always wanted to. It's, it's a ways from here. It's a ways from here. It's a long flight. Um, how, what's the actual flight from like New Zealand it's to Australia? It's three hours to Melbourne. Okay. It's not too so, bad. So it's like, it's like we're sitting in New York right now. It's like flying from uh, New York to Chicago basically, yeah. or just a little bit. So that's, that's not, not that bad. bad. It's, no. But it's, but it's far enough to not be like around the corner. Yes. You can't, you can't <laughs> you just take a road trip day. and go. No. Um, I, there's so many things that you talked about that I wanted, that I, I, I kind of want to, uh, expand a, upon, dig into. Um, I really want to come back to the fact that you mentioned luck a couple of times in a couple of different ways. And that's something that's been on my mind. My listeners know this has been <laughs> on my mind. Uh, I've been bringing this up in like every single conversation lately. Um, but let me table that because I think it's more important. You mentioned your illness a few times, uh, and that was v- relatively recently, just a couple of years ago, right? 2017? Yeah. What you, you said was congestive heart failure. What happened? I had gone through a separation and a divorce. I was married for 27 years, and I found myself feeling really lost. I bought an air ticket online. It took me to 12 countries. And I was just free-falling through the universe, just really confused. I ended up in New Mexico. New Mexico, (laughs) all places. (laughs) And I found a job working for the University of New Mexico as a research scholar. And I wanted to lose weight. I had packed on a lot of weight. I was depressed. And I started hiking up in the Sandia Mountains because I wanted to climb Mount Kilimanjaro for my 50th birthday. Mm. I developed these headaches and I thought it was altitude sickness because I'd been living at sea level for so long. I started coughing at night Mm. and I kept going to the same emergency center. My health insurance policy wouldn't let me see a a general practitioner, 
but I could go to this emergency center and I saw a different doctor every time. And it was like they were playing Russian roulette with my health because each one would prescribe a different medication. And I kept saying, I can't sleep at night. During the day, I was fine. But if I put my head on a pillow, Mm. I would start coughing. It was this weird dry cough. Mm. They gave me cough mixture. Meanwhile, it was fluid that had accumulated around my heart. And so it would wake me up. I I sat for six months. I could not sleep lying down. Then during the summer holidays, my kids said, mom, just come back to New Zealand. Come back, get some proper health care. I actually collapsed for the first time when I found out I had high blood pressure was in the Colorado mountains. I had gone hiking at 14,000 feet. And the doctor who saw me was shocked that I I was alive. And so I went back home. My daughter bought me this amazing little holiday to Indonesia, to Bali. Bali is my resting place. And it was a 10-day spa vacation, which turned into a nightmare because on the ninth day, I collapsed in a rice field and woke up three days later in an intensive care unit and almost died. And I remember the angiogram. So the, the doctor, the cardiologist, cuts an incision in your wrist. It's normally with local anesthetic, and the anesthetic didn't work. I felt everything. And I was screaming in pain. And because I'd been on blood thinners, they said, Gertrude, if we stop, we'll have to cut you somewhere else and you, you'll bleed. So it'll take five minutes. So he's injecting this dye into my wrist. I am in just pain. And I started watching the monitor in front of me, of my heart. And I just went inward and I started asking my heart, why, why are you doing this to me? And I got the weirdest answer. My heart answered back and said, Gertrude, you've done this to me. I'm pumping oxygen and nutrients into every single cell in your body to keep you alive. But you've forgotten to take care of me. And when I got that understanding, the procedure stopped, the pain stopped. Fortunately, my coronary arteries were clear. So the fluid around my heart was drained with a diuretic blood pressure medication I was on. And it's been a slow road to recovery because I had chronic fatigue. I I couldn't walk five meters without being breathless. I was overweight. And the last two years have been interesting. But I say that my illness was a gift. If anybody out there is sick and you're, you're stuck right now and you're lying in a bed somewhere, not sure why this has happened to you, take the time to reconnect with yourself because that's what I did. I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't do anything. And I started asking myself questions like, what is my next step? I've always believed that uh, time is an illusion Mm. and that the concept of time is made up by us so we can wake up in the morning and get to work at nine and finish at five. But imagine if time didn't exist and your past, your present, and your future exist in the same timeline you can actually talk to your future self and and figure out what you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And so I I play with that a lot. I go into a meditative state and I ask myself, what am I supposed to do next? And sometimes I will bump into someone the next morning who will say a word that connects with a thought and then it's like a light bulb moment and I get it. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes it's something I read in the newspaper, something on the TV. I just start being very aware of what's coming at me mm-hmm. because I 
I get my signs from the universe in a very magical way, and mostly it's through my dreams. What's your book called, by the way? Born on the Continent, Ubuntu. Born on the Continent, Ubuntu. Okay. Mm -hmm. When did you release that? That was in 2003. Okay, 2003. So first, are you considering an update now that you've got this new talk? Yes. So now yeah. uh, beyond the continent, Ubuntu. Oh, wonderful. So Born on the Continent, Ubuntu, the first one is about my life from when I left Africa until 15 years ago. Mm. So a sequel to that is, is coming out. Okay. So that's great. Actually, mm. are you in the, are, is it done or are you in the middle hey, of I'm working? I'm in the middle of working. You're in the middle of it. Yeah. Okay. I had no idea until this moment. Yes. That wasn't planned for the <laughs> listeners. That wasn't like a planned uh, promotion or something. That's wonderful. So I, I can't wait for that. Uh, maybe when we're both closer to the end of our current books, we can exchange before, uh, for the edit, <laughs> yes. during the editing process and get some mutual feedback. That would be good. Um, so I'm curious, your writing process, do you find yourself doing the same thing every time you sit down to write? Do you have a habit? Do you just write when it hits you? Are you the person that has to just wait for inspiration or can you manufacture it? So you said it takes you a long time to write. It does, so for long. me, it's the opposite. <laughs> um, when I wrote my first book, I'll be honest, it took me 18 years. Right. Okay. It was a journal that eventually turned into the first memoir. Mm -hmm. The second book I wrote took me 40 hours. Oh my god. And goodness. I've now developed a process called how to write a book in 40 hours. And I coach and teach people how to do this. So take, take my money. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be <laughs> So the, the process I've developed is when I wrote the second book, I was working as a change agent. I was What's hired. A change agent? I would go into organizations. I did a business degree and I majored in industrial psychology and management. Mm. And I would go into organizations and help with staff morale, anything to do with sure. okay. PR, personal development kind of stuff in organizations. And the two major banks in New Zealand had merged and they were having problems with staff morale. Mm. And I knew one of the managers and he said to me, Gertrude, I, I need your help. I've got 650 people in this building. They are not getting on. Come in and do your stuff. And everything I do is around storytelling. And I thought, how could I shift 650 people in one day? And I asked them to give me a boardroom. They would bring people in, 100, 120 at, at the time. And I did the same presentation six times that day. But the presentation was called, It's Not About What Matters That Happens. And it turned into the title of my second book. And I decided to tell 10 stories of my major life challenges and I would summarize each story with the lessons or the gifts that I got from each challenge. And people would walk into this boardroom, I'd give them a feedback form, and I'd say to them, today's presentation is based on a book that I want to write. I would love your feedback. Please put down any questions that come up as I'm speaking. Don't wait until the end, otherwise you forget. Or if I say something that really resonates and gets hits home, write that down as well. And then I put at the bottom, and if you would like a copy, <laughs> the book is $35. Oh, my goodness. I pre-sold 485 copies of a book that didn't exist. <laughs> so I was under a lot of pressure to deliver. And so I got back home. I got my personal assistant to type up all the questions into an Excel spreadsheet. Oh, and she collated the common thread of questions, and those became the chapters to this book. And I just got my dictaphone at the time. Now you've got smartphones sure. and I just recorded myself answering the questions. I got that transcribed. Mm. Then once that was on paper, the book was out of my head. The structure was already there. 
And then I just went back to each chapter and I refined it, perfected it. I worked with my editors and literally in 40 hours, the book was on Amazon and Kindle. Oh my goodness. So, so. Uh, so, so, you, <laughs> so I love this though. So you leveraged a workshop opportunity and I'm guessing for anybody aspiring authors out there, and I'm, I'm taking this to heart as well, obviously, um, working on my second one, needing to not spend, I spent three years on the first one okay. and not 18, but three years was enough for me. Um, and my second one as I'm in the beginning stage of it okay. right now. And partly the reason it hasn't advanced further in the last six months is because I'm terrified of how long it took me to write the first one. <laughs> no, I'm and, getting stuck again. <laughs> and I'm getting a little like, oh no. Um, <laughs> but I really desperately want, and, and also part of it is that the first book I wrote only came out last year. And I, I'm, I'm kind of torn between, do I really want to spend immediately jump to the next one okay. or should, should I give the current one a little bit more breathing room for a year or two before right. I really launch into the next because it's a new topic. Okay. It's, it's related to the first one, but it's a new topic. Um, so I love this idea that you use the workshop and you kind of had your your audience, your target market, in fact, like write the book for you essentially. Exactly. Like the book so you're, you're, going, you're going to market before you write right. and you're saying, what do you need to hear based on this content? Oh, it's so good. I'm, oh, so you're so going good. to deliver appropriate content if you do it this way? Yeah. Because you know what you know, yeah. Brian. I know what I know, but I don't know what my reader needs to know. And that's yeah. what this process does. Yeah, yeah. Then it's, you just reverse engineer it and you deliver the content that's of value to the people you want to serve. So here's a here's a question. What would you say then to the the flip side? I like to play devil's advocate. To the to the folks who are who say do the opposite. Basically, don't it just ignore the audience. You need to write the thing that's, you know, don't try to write a thing that you think your audience will like. Write the thing that's meaningful to you, the thing that you think. And then, you know, it's the other. It's go find an audience for your work as opposed to make work for your audience. Do you do you have a, an opinion on that? My opinion is always, how may I serve? So if I'm going to write a book, I'm thinking about that person who's going to take the time to pay for my content, mm -hmm. how can I be of service to you? Right. So I'm always on the other side. Right. That makes sense. Uh, when I write my personal stories, mm -hmm. so if it's not a book that's teaching anyone anything, mm -hmm. then I do what you've just said, because okay. then that's my stuff. That's, that's just right. me and what what I'm passionate about or what I want to put out into the world. So there's there's two types of books here. By constraining yourself in certain areas, you actually free yourself artistically in yes. other areas, isn't it? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? That's kind of the way that I've been working on my movie script. Movie um, script. You yes. are you are multifaceted. <laughs> America is all about the multi-hyphenate. You are like, this is like <laughs> you really ought to be here. <laughs> I, I read a book once called Refuse to Choose. I can't even remember the author, where it was a woman who wanted to be an entrepreneur. She was a young mom, she had kids and Everybody kept saying, wait until your children have grown up. And she wrote this book called Refuse to Choose. And it was great because I was writing my second book. I had three kids under the age of 12. I had three new companies I'd created. And so I learned to stretch time. You can turn a 24-hour day into 36 if you want to. It's called air travel. <laughs> <laughs> what I would do is my kids would come from school. I would feed them, would do homework, mm. put them to bed. I would go to sleep early mm -hmm. and I would wake up. I would put my alarm for two o'clock in the morning and 2 a.m. became my writing hour. Uh -huh. And if I had two, three hours 
intense with no interruptions. I got so much done. Wow. And that's how I finished the first book. And so with Refuse to Choose, I've had a multitude of businesses that are so different from, I'm an artist, I hand paint fabrics, I'm a textile artist, I design clothes, I used to have a design business, I opened a recruiting agency for doctors, then I started recruiting actors for King Kong and Avatar, for Peter Jackson and James Cameron. And that's what inspired me to be a digital filmmaker. Wow. A digital storyteller, rather. And I, I went back to college when I was 37 and I started working on this movie script. And it's based on my life story. The backdrop to my story is the AIDS pandemic yeah. and how it's affected me. Sure. And for the last 15 years, it's been a struggle. Yeah. Um, it's a personal story. My youngest brother died of AIDS. Ugh. And for me, when I write creatively, it's like writing a poem. When you finish a poem, it's a feeling that comes over you and you know it's done. Mm -hmm. And I haven't had that feeling yet. Mm. And so I don't push it. You know how you were saying, can you manufacture? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So with my poetry, I normally wake up with headaches mm -hmm. and the, my poems come out so perfect. Mm -hmm. I have to speak them if I try and write. Mm. I lose the words. So I normally just record myself speaking and I, I do read it, it back I and I'm like, all the time. oh my gosh, where did that come from? Right? Such a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. So that's been my process with the script. And I was very fortunate that the ex-mayor of Wellington became a very good friend of mine mm -hmm. and I could just rock up at the mayor's office and have a cup of tea. And mm -hmm. one day she said to me, get your, you know, what are you working on? What, how can I help you? And I said, I'm, I've got the script and I'm really struggling. And she gave my book to Peter Jackson's wife and her business partner, and they've come <laughs> on board as my mentors. And they ended up seeing three stories, three separate movies in the first script. So I've gone back to the drawing board where we're going to start in the middle mm -hmm. of my life from when I left Africa 20 years ago until now. The second story is my backstory, my childhood story. And the third is futuristic. It's the mm -hmm. prophecy. So when I wrote my first book, I had a dream. And the dream was of my funeral. Mm. I've only ever had about two or three of these type of dreams before. And in this dream, I can smell, I can taste, I can touch. It's like I quantum leap into the future or into the past. Mm. And they were putting my body in the ground mm. and somebody was reading my eulogy and saying everything I was going to achieve in this life until I died in 2067 at the age of 100. There you go. And <laughs> but I, I'm going to stretch that. I'm going to change that. Maybe 20, You're I don't ambitious. know. <laughs> Live a little bit longer with technology. But in, in the dream, it, it, there was a mention that I would write a book. I hadn't written the book yet. And this book was going to reach millions of children on the African continent. It talked about my working on a movie script. I was going to write, direct, produce, and act in this film. It was winning eight Oscars. And I wrote that down as the last chapter of my first book. So I'm telling people this. So in case you buy my book, read the last <laughs> chapter first. It's, it's confusing because a lot of people who bought the book 20 years ago thought I was crazy. Sure. Because I was still alive, but I had written my eulogy. Right. And my ex-husband said to me, Get you, you're crazy. People are going to think you're mad. You could never do this. And I'm like, mm, I don't know. Mm -hmm. it, it feels real. It feels right. It feels like I've done it. And then I started saying it out loud. So you talk about quantum physics. When you have an idea and you have the courage to put it on a piece of paper, 
it's already here. It's now in the physical world. Yes, yes. If an architect decides to draw and make design a house, they have to get that idea out of their head and, and, and design the pictures, right? Yes. So a lot of people will hold on to their ideas in their heads and they take them to their graves. Yeah. They say the richest places in the world are graveyards. Mm. They are full of people who had amazing stories, who had the most fascinating ideas, but they did not have the courage to just even put it on a piece of paper. So when you do this, and this is what I did with my, um, my movie script, I started saying it. Mm-hmm. Brian, I would say it in every speech I gave. I would say, I am the first African person to write, direct, and produce an Oscar. And I said it with such conviction. The first time I said it, I was shaking. <laughs> Second time I said it, it felt so good. The third time, it just felt real. And I kept saying it and saying it. And then I started attracting people. You talked about luck. And I'd like to segue yes, into that please, because- because I was hoping to get there. Yes. Yeah, I have lived- but most people say is a charmed life. Um, I've, I've, I'm a, but I believe you create your luck and how you live. It's based on the choices you make. It's based on how you interact with people. I am a sum total of every single human being I've ever met. And I have met some phenomenal people. And so I don't start with how am I going to do something I'm really lucky in that I am shown the vision of what my future looks like. And it is so clear. I know I'm going to do it. I don't start with how am I going to do it. I start with saying I'm going to do it. So when you use the I am statement, you become it. They're two of the most powerful words you can use to create anything. So I started saying I'm the first African woman to write, direct, produce, and act in her own. Oscar award-winning screenplay. And it was pretty magical because when I moved to New Zealand, because Peter Jackson was working on Lord of the Rings, I was so inspired. Mm -hmm. I was just so inspired. I had taken part in my first major film was in Zimbabwe called Cry Freedom with Denzel Washington. Oh my goodness. Sir Richard Attenborough was the director. It was just a small- Or anything (laughs) you haven't done. (laughs) I just had this small walk-on, walk-off part, but I got to act in this amazing film And I knew I would be a filmmaker. I was 19 when I took part in that film. Fast track, I'm now in New Zealand. Peter Jackson has just made this amazing film and he started giving lectures all over Wellington. And some of his staff did the same. And I went to a presentation where the guy who designed the spider in Lord of the Rings Mm -hmm. was giving a talk. And I'm sitting at the back of the room and this voice said, ask, just Mm -hmm. ask. Mm -hmm. And my ask was, I was thinking in my head, God, I wouldn't mind acting in one of his films. <laughs> so, something got my hand up and I just asked the question. And this guy said, actually, we're looking for 350 African extras for one scene. Oh, my God. For the film King Kong, which came after Lord of the Rings. Oh, goodness. So he gives me an email address. I email my CV. Next thing I know, I'm in front of the casting director. I got two parts in the film and I felt really special. I thought, gosh, my acting is fantastic. They've given me two roles in this film. Are you in King Kong? I am. Oh my God. (laughs) Are you able to, can you send, 
like, are you able to send like a, a link to like a, a freeze frame or something? Like send me like where we can like put I'll, that in the show I'll notes or something. I'll put that in the show notes. We'll, we'll make it, sure we Again, it wasn't a big part. Yeah. But well, sure. I'm there. But, my sister's in it. My kids, my, the whole family. But even to a certain extent, just being around people. The, the fact that you did ask though, when you talk about luck, and you said you do believe that you do believe in luck. So clearly you do believe in it because you believe we can shape it, which means you believe in it. So you don't believe. So this is what's interesting, right? And I, I have, this is the, the, my big question with luck. We already both agreed that we're in a deterministic universe, yes. that everything's set, but we both agree you can create your own luck. You can bend how, reality. How, how do we reconcile those two things? Those two seem the ability to manipulate your own luck to change your kind of path and the fact that we both agree we're in a deterministic okay, okay, world where so, everything's so, set. How do we, So can, what is, is real? When we use the term real, so if you're not happy with your current reality, be unrealistic. <laughs> That's how I do it. Uh, be unrealistic. So Aim for that impossible thing that everybody tells you cannot be done. For me, it, it gives me just this drive to prove you wrong. And then I attract people. It's, it's, it's a magical way of being because when you start putting these words out into the ether, they hover around you. Our words have power. Yes. You know, when they used to talk about witches casting a spell, mm -hmm. they were words. Yes. Because words have a vibration to them. Yeah. They have this. a vibration that attracts the people that you are trying to bring into your life. Language is so powerful. It's powerful and people just don't know how powerful it is. So I talked about writing something down to bring it into reality. Yeah. When you say it, you give it so much more power. Oh, yeah. So I, att I attract people in the most magical way. Yeah. And I, I can only say that the way that I do it, and I started creating this, this thing. It's going to turn into another book called The Visioneering Toolbox. Mm-hmm. And the Visioneering Toolbox is about showing people how to clear their inner pictures in their heads. Hmm. So it's like putting on your spectacles. Yeah. It's there already. It's just out of how, focus. How to get it in focus. Exactly. How to, how to, how to, yeah, right. Got it. Right. How to get everything it's all, in focus. And, and what the gift that I have is all of my visions come through these dreams and I know exactly what it will look like. I know how it will feel when I get that Oscar. I've, I've lived it already. I've written the Oscar uh, acceptance speech. I know uh, it by heart. <laughs> in case the listener can or can't hear, that's get his husband <laughs> laughing in the background. The first time he's audible. <laughs> um, oh my goodness. So, and I met him in another magical way. Can I share this? Yes, let's, let's do it. Okay, so when I went through my separation and divorce, I decided I did not want to be one of those women who's sad, who's miserable, who's... who's thinking, oh, life's so bad, I'll never meet someone. I believe in love. And I, I knew that the man who would love me was out there just waiting for me to find him. And I started writing letters. Again, I put it on paper. I described not what he would look like, mm -hmm. but the essence of the man I wanted to die with. Mm. I wanted somebody who was gentle, who was kind, who was funny, who I would click with. And when I met him, it would feel like, oh, there you are. Where have you been? I've been waiting for you. Mm. So it was a book. It's now a book called Dear Harry. So I have multiple books. Again, I refuse to choose to write one book at a time. You refuse to I choose anything. <laughs> <laughs> you will not be stopped. <laughs> 
So it started with this letter called Dear Harry, where I said, you know, Harry, I, I'm, I'm, I'm out in the world looking for you and I'm going to travel. I don't know what country you're in. And this is when I, I was going to these 12 countries searching for my Harry. And every time I felt lonely, every time I felt sad, I would write letters and they would come in my head. Some of them are Shakespearean mm. inspired. Like I wrote this one letter with Shakespeare in my head and it's just so beautiful. <laughs> and then he showed up. And when I met Darius, it was soon after I was recovering from heart failure mm. and I was in bad shape. I had chronic fatigue. I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't walk five steps without being breathless. And a friend of mine said to me, Gertrude, you've got to get up. I was depressed. Sure. And she said, I've put your profile on a dating site. <laughs> and men was the last thing I was interested in was to date. I'm like, Shannon, take my profile down. She's like, no, this is an excuse for you to put on some makeup, put on a dress, get out of the damn house. <laughs> and just as I was about to take my profile down, because I got slammed by a lot of young men. Yeah. And I mean, some of these kids were 28 and I'll say, you're the same age as my son. Oh my and they'll say to me, they'll say, oh, but age is just a number. And I'm like, no, you have milk on your nose. I'm <laughs> looking for someone mature. The week I was about to take my profile down, she reworded what I was looking for. And the first person I met is now my husband. Unbelievable. And I remember we went on this date and my sister said to me, look, dating websites are dangerous. He could be a serial killer. Take a picture of him when you meet him. If you could, and if you could see Darius, he's the last thing from being a serial killer. <laughs> so we chose, I chose this little restaurant called Gateway to Heaven. I'm a diehard romantic. Oh my goodness. And we met at four o'clock. It was closing at five in case I didn't like him. I could leave within an hour. <laughs> And this poor man walks into this restaurant. I'm like, do you mind if we take a picture? He's like, yeah, sure. So we, he was holding the camera and he clicked on the video. And we started laughing because it was a little video clip instead of a picture. But it was evidence in case, you know, something happened to me and I disappeared. My sister would know how to track me. And at the end of that hour, we ended up going for dinner. We were in that restaurant until 2 a.m. in the morning. They had to kick us out of the restaurant. Mm. And then as he was walking me to the car... He put his arms around me and he hugged me. And Darius is a big guy and I'm mm -hmm. pretty short, right? <laughs> and he enveloped me in his arms and I felt the broken pieces of my soul come back together again. And there's a line in the very first letter where I said, and when I will meet you with the first hug, I will feel the broken pieces of my soul come back together again as you heal me with love and laughter. And that's what the last two years have been like. It's just been incredible. So so beautiful. Yeah. I believe in love. I believe love makes the world go round and yeah. that there is someone for everybody out there and you shouldn't give up. Just keep looking, keep trying. I mean, I, I believe love makes the world go round. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you one final question. Before we do that, uh, let me say again, just thank you so much for your time and just showing up, not just literally to this silly uh, hotel room uh, blue couch, <laughs> uh, but thank you for just like being fully present, especially with having just told these stories on stage and kind of lived it and breathed it last night. I, I know, you know as, as a speaker, right, I know how draining it is to go into that emotional place and tell those stories. Thank you for doing it again uh, this thank morning for, for the benefit of everybody here. Um, 
Before I ask you the last question, where should our listeners, where should we find you? What's the first thing where, you know, someone's listening to this. My audience is largely young professionals, young adults, and people who work with young professionals and young adults. Uh, Where should, what's the thing? It could be a book, a website, anything that you'd like them to go, like, go see this first or go read this first. I would say go and read my book. Which one? Born on the Continent, Ubuntu, the first book, because that gives you an essence of who I am, what I've done, what I'm doing, what I'm trying to do. Great. If you want to connect with me, Facebook is my platform. Okay. So I've got a huge following on Facebook. Uh, My website is herstorycircle.com. Herstorycircle.com. And it is a platform that I'm creating for social impact. It's a social impact conference that I'm curating in a thousand locations around the world. I'm trying to connect a million women. You know, the Me Too movement has got women getting up and saying, Mm -hmm. I need to be heard. So I'm creating a platform where I mentor, I coach people who have never spoken Mm -hmm. to get up on stage and share their stories we are giving the platform 25% to men mm. because I believe that a lot of women's empowerment programs, we are talking to ourselves mm. and we need to bring our men to the table. We know our issues, right. but until men start coming into the room and listening and sharing, we're just trying to create the impossible. Right. And in every location, we pick a social impact project to get behind. It can be around women and children the elderly, the homeless, or the disabled. Mm -hmm. And as a collective, we have 100 speakers at every conference over two or three days. So it's a TED Talk style conference for women and men, 25%. Right. And we get behind a project in that location that we can support. Great. So it could be a nonprofit. It could be somebody who wants to start something in the community. If we had 100 people in the room Mm -hmm. and somebody is trying to raise, let's say, $100,000 to start off a project and we each gave 100 bucks, we could create massive impact as a collective. So everything I'm doing is how do we work as a collective to implement change? The other side to this conference is that we pick a project offshore so that the conference becomes a bridge for women in the developed world, helping up women in the developing world. Mm. So I have contacts in Southeast Asia, in the Caribbean, in Africa, in India, where we've been working in women's cooperatives that need financial support. So for instance, I have a woman who stepped up to bring the conference to Galway in Ireland. She was born in Tanzania, has no contacts there. And she said to me, Gertrude, I, I don't know anybody, but I wanted to go back because that's where I was born. One Facebook connection with my chairperson in Arusha Mm -hmm. has now created a cooperative for the 100 women in Tanzania. They were trying to raise money to buy 100 sewing machines to get out of poverty. Mm -hmm. My speakers in Ireland have taken it upon themselves to each raise 100 pounds to support one of their peers. This little project in Tanzania is not just going to impact on 100 women anymore. It's 1,000. Because they're starting a a cooperative to teach women how to sew. And through the conference, you know how at TED we had the swag bags Uh at the door? The women who are, you didn't? (laughs) We'll make sure we get you (laughs) one. The women who are in Tanzania or in Africa, I've now set up about three or four of these cooperatives because of this girl's initiative. Sure. They will make the swag bags. For this conference, if we give them an order for a thousand bags at five US dollars, 
$5,000 in Africa is like millions of shillings. Wow. So that's the social impact. That's great. So that's HerStoryCircle.com? HerStoryCircle.com. That's great. the best so website. I will make sure that we've got a link to uh, your your book, uh, you know, your your Facebook socials. Uh, are you on Instagram as well? Yes, I am. Okay, because I tagged you. And so I'm glad I'm glad to, to know that I actually tagged you and not just someone with the same name that looks like you. Okay. Uh, you never, you never, really <laughs> never know. know. Um, okay, so that's great. I want to ask you one final question to kind of bring everything all together here, which is, uh, as I mentioned, a lot of young professionals, people who work with young professionals, educators, and et cetera. If you could give just, you know, one piece of advice and kind of distill this unbelievable, just ambitious life that clearly is not even close to over. <laughs> you, you sound like you're, you talk like someone who's like, like 18 and just getting started. Um, what piece of advice would you give to a young person, a young professional who wants to make a positive impact in the world? They're at the beginning of their career. They're not, maybe they just left school or they're just about to, they got a tremendous amount of student loans and debt. They don't know what they're going to do with their life yet, yeah. but they know they want to do something meaningful. What would you tell them? I would say that your life purpose lies in the things that you are passionate about. If you can find a way to create a career, a business around your passion, then you're not going to work. You're going to play every single day. Last night at the conference, we had a young boy who kept us there until the end. Right. He was about 20 years old. And he came to me and said, Gertrude, there was a reason why I came today. I'm confused. I feel lost. I'm not in college. I'm just hanging out with friends, drinking, and I just feel like my life's not going anywhere, but something told me to come. And where do I go from here? So it's really the kind of person you're talking about. And I said to him, the best way to find your purpose is to go back to yourself as a child and think, what did I do when I was from the age of, let's say, about three to seven before life contaminated you mm. that you did without being told how to do it? Mm-hmm. So if you could play soccer, if you could dance, if you could play a musical instrument, if you could talk. I was one of those little kids in class at the back of the room mm-hmm. talking, chatting, cracking jokes. Mm-hmm being punished for it all the time. I get paid to speak now. So if you can find your intuitive gifts, sometimes your life purpose is in that thing that you do without thinking. And you will find a career where you can do that thing you do without thinking really well. That's great. Go with that. Thank you for that. Well, Getrud, I, I can't thank you enough for your for your time today and, uh, thank and you everything for having that you do me. all over the world. It's thank amazing. you. Thank you, Brian. It's been an honor. Before you start traveling through time and communicating with your future self, here are a few takeaways from this episode. First, Ubuntu states that a person is a person through other people. All of us are stronger than any of us. Second, you don't have to be a millionaire or superhuman to make a difference in the world. It just takes a bit of craft and a lot of courage. And finally, time is an illusion. No one has more or less than anyone else in a given day. So choose how you spend yours with care. 
Head to onenewperson.com for show notes and related links from this conversation with Getrude. If you found value in this or any episode, share it on social media with someone else who would benefit. And remember to use hashtag onenewperson, all spelled out, so we can find you and thank you. I'm Brian Miller. This is One New Person, and we'll see you next time.